The Belly of the Beast with Brendan McCauley, a Go Loud original. Ned Broy, now free from the fear of execution, may have been forgiven for thinking his efforts in the struggle for Irish independence was over, and it was time for him to move into safer, more stable waters. That was until Michael Collins informed him that he, Ned Broy, would walk the final steps with Collins as Ireland moved towards the final days of the 800-year-old struggle. The stakes are very high. The possibility of failure is very high. Collins had long ago learned to trust Roy, trust his integrity, trust his judgment. Three or four thugs stepped out unexpectedly before us. One flashed an electric torch in Roy's face. I could see pistols gleaming. For the first time in centuries, the sun was due to rise and cast its warming rays and bright light on a free and independent Ireland. One can imagine the giddy excitement that must have spread across the land as rumours started to trickle through that the British were going to sit down with the Irish rebel leaders. When the rumours of a truce and possible peace settlement began to grow and spread through towns and villages, there must have been a great nervous energy among the general public. The reality was slightly different for the fighting men and women, however. There were some old scores that needed to be settled with their enemies. And while we can look back with the benefit of hindsight and see the great developments that led to our buoyant economy and society today, there must have been many fears and anxieties for the non-combatants, especially those in the middle classes, in business, and those who were of the pro-union persuasion. Can we survive on our own? Will our banking system be robust enough? Could communism take hold here? Who will defend if we are invaded by a foreign foe? When the fighting was coming to an end and talks of peace with Britain beckoned, the cohesion and esprit de corps that existed within the Irish nationalist family was beginning to fracture. There was no longer the common enemy, perfidious Albion, to fight against. Instead of standing shoulder to shoulder, some strong Irish personalities and leaders were emerging who were seeking to flex their political muscles. Michael Collins, as ever, was in the centre of this new emerging status quo. Now, more than ever, he needed those he could trust, those he could confide in, those who had proved their integrity, bravery and reliability in the past. And this is where Ned Roy was to prove himself invaluable as he moved out from the shadows of the struggle for Irish independence into being a loyal support and confidant for the big fellow. Roy describes his release in his witness statement. The atmosphere in Arbor Hill military prison changed considerably after the talk of a truce became known. I was allowed to exercise outside in the art. That summer was one of the finest on record. I was becoming bronzed and healthy, having several hours of walking exercise outdoors each day. On hearing from O'Reilly that I was to be released soon, I carefully washed all my clothes and a showerproof coat that I had taken to prison 
and which it got badly soiled as I had to wear it practically day and night in the cell during the cold months. During the lovely summer, when out for hours each day in the prison yard, I managed to dry out my clothes. As Philip O'Reilly informed me, I was to be transferred into the custody of the DMP authorities to be kept at the Bridewell Barracks. The military party took me on a lorry to the Bridewell station and the first thing that really impressed me on emerging from the prison was the wonderful colouring of the trees and gardens and the great beauty of the red bricks. After the drab grey prison for over four months, all the colours took an unexpected beauty, struck me with their magnificence. I was duly handed over to the jurisdiction of the police at the Bridewell and as I was still a prisoner, I was lodged in the doctor's room for the night. Under the terms of the amnesty, I was to be released under bail from two parties of £1,000 each, which was a huge sum, and this had to be organised. I was visited by many of my old colleagues from the DMP and many of my old athletic friends. The following morning, I was collected by Superintendent Purcell, who was loud in his protest that he had never done anything against me and that I should not have any bad feeling against him. He obviously knew that there was going to be major changes in the status quo. I assured him that I had no bad feelings about him. In due course, bail was arranged, and Purcell took me before Lieutenant Colonel Edgeworth Johnston, the Chief Commissioner of the DMP, who informed me that he was suspending me from the police, effective from when I was arrested in February. The result was that I was to receive full pay for the time I was incarcerated in Arbor Hill. He then went on to inform me that on foot of superior orders I was to be dismissed from the police with immediate effect. I made a great case of protesting my innocence for the sake of appearances and asking leave to appeal with this grave injustice. I now proceeded on foot with Superintendent Purcell to the detective office in Great Brunswick Street Barracks to be paid off. I had thought I had not suffered physically from my indoor confinement in Arbor Hill but I nearly lost the power of my legs on this walk. The paymaster at the police station was a unionist and had the utmost reluctance in paying me for my time in prison. In normal circumstances, a deduction was always made for barrack accommodation, that is, for lodging in the barracks. As I had been accommodated in Arbor Hill, this did not apply. A rage was enveloping him and I did not help the rage when I suggested that he might deduct the cost of my accommodation in prison. He responded in a flurry of unparliamentary language. Purcell took me to my dormitory to clear my scant belongings and then I was free to go. When I stepped outside the police building on that lovely summer's day, I could not help a feeling of exultation that the Irish nation had been recognised at last. Because the truce was such a recognition, the first recognition since the arrival of Strongbow. The feeling of euphoria and relief lasted for some time and was added to when he met Mick Collins, who jokingly berated him on his appearance. Bri, you're a disgrace to the Republic, man. Head to Callaghan and Sons, the tailors on 13 Dame Street. Get a new suit with all the trimmings, new shoes and underwear. That evening there was a celebration gathering in Devlin's pub in 69 Parnell Street. The owner, Liam Devlin, had placed his premises at the disposal of Michael Collins and other IRA leaders as a mating place and as a safe house during the later months of the War of Independence. It was now the most appropriate place to gather to celebrate Roy's release. 
not just from Arbor Hill Prison, but also from the very likely execution for his services as a spy and supplier of information to the IRA from his privileged position in the heart of the G Division office in Dublin Castle. That night in Devlin's, Roy met the leaders of the IRA intelligence section, Liam Tobin, Gerald Sullivan and Tom Cullen. Previously, his meetings with these men had been in covert and dangerous situations. Now Broy could speak openly and easily, without having to check for fast exit routes and fear of who might come through the door. That night, he also met his great hero from the Longford Flying Squad, Sean McGowan, who had just escaped the death sentence. A long private conversation with Mick Collins took place in the Snogan Devlins, Collins speaking with huge enthusiasm about the freedom that Ireland would soon enjoy. Freedom to set up her own army, her own police force, and at last, her own fiscal autonomy. But Broy remembered some lighter moments with Mick Collins that night in Devlin's. Everyone was in great rejoicing mood, including Mick Collins. I told him by way of a boast that I had won up on all the other IRA prisoners and that the British government had paid me in full for the period I was in prison on suspicion of spying against them. Mick casually asked to see the money, as if for proof of my assertion. I showed him the envelope and he promptly sees it and announced that I would have to wrestle for it. So we set to. He grabbed me by the shoulders and we fell to the floor and he made an extravagant gesture to bite my ear. But in a few minutes, I had the upper hand and won. But I don't believe he did his best. This was one of his tricks to let the other man win. I still do not believe whether I would have been able to beat him in an out-and-out wrestling match. In any case, none of us would use full force against him, even in play. As to all of us, he was a sacred personage, the every embodiment, the personification of Irish resistance to England. Ned Roy goes on to record how Liam Tobin, who was the Chief of Staff of IRA Intelligence, and who had had many, many meetings with Roy, as secret British intelligence information was being passed on, had failed to recognise Broy at first when they met at the celebration party that night in Devlin's. After a few minutes, they embraced and Tobin said he was sure that he'd never see Broy alive again. This perhaps gives us a small glimpse as to the physical toll and no doubt the mental health impact that four months in solitary confinement in Arbor Hill Military Prison had on Ned Broy. That night, Ned Broy asked Collins for a few weeks off to go to his home place to rest and recuperate. Collins told him to go with his blessing, but to report back as talks about the peace talks were taking place between the President of the Irish Republic, Eamon de Valera, and the British Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, and that Ned Broy might be a further service. For now, this brave patriot service was no longer needed in the struggle for Irish independence, but rather service to the soon-to-be-declared newly independent Ireland, free at last from the shackles of British domination. It must have been with a very full and excited heart that Ned Broy boarded that train at Kingsbridge Station for home in order to rest his weary body. What hope and optimism not to say relief and pride he must have felt. A decision taken four years earlier in 1917 
to pass on vital and sensitive information to the Irish volunteers, who, along with Sinn Féin, were embarking on the struggle for Irish independence, fresh from the disaster of the ill-conceived Easter Rising, had been vindicated. He had risked his life for the land he loved. He had spied for the Irish rebels from his desk, in his police station, in the belly of the imperial beast. And he had won, and Ireland had won. We did some work recently on our home in Terreur, extending what we call the family room to give us more living space. This room was the original kitchen when Ned Broy lived here as the first owner of our house in the 1920s. We had a lengthy discussion about whether we should remove the open fireplace and replace it with a wood-burning stove. I'm so glad we decided to keep the open fire. It's such a joy and a comfort to sit at an open fire on a cold winter's night and to feel safe and warm. On some nights, I wonder what Ned Broy must have thought about as he sat at the same fireplace, enjoying the same warmth and comfort and calm. He had experienced so much danger and adrenaline-filled moments in his life while spying for the IRA. He also had a ringside seat at the treaty negotiations in London, which culminated in the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty on the 6th of December 1921. This treaty was the most important deal ever made by the Irish with Britain. The country which had planted, conquered and dominated Ireland for over 800 years. Broy was one of the very few people who was released until after the treaty. And the fact that Collins insisted on his early release indicated how he was valued by Collins. Ned Broy spent several weeks in the country and returned to Dublin revived and refreshed when he went to work for Michael Collins as part of his intelligence team. He recalls that he attended several meetings of Dáil Éireann in the mansion house and acted in his old role as security and intelligence officer. But this time, instead of being officially employed by the British as a detective in the notorious G Division political office and working in the shadows as a spy for the IRA, Ned Broy was now overtly working for the Republican side. He had come out. There was considerable and lengthy talks as to the nature of the planned negotiations that were to take place with the British. How were the two polar opposites to be reconciled? The Irish side wanted a full and sovereign republic, and the British wanted Ireland to have limited independence, but desperately wanted Ireland to remain in the British Empire and under the authority of the king. The language of the time put it thus, that the negotiation would take place with a view to ascertaining how the association of Ireland with the community of nations known as the British Empire might be best reconciled with Irish nationalist aspirations. Finally, the President of the Republic, Eamon de Valera, and David Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, announced a truce on the 11th of July with peace negotiations to begin later that year. One of the greatest puzzles in Irish history now emerges. De Valera chooses not to attend the treaty negotiations, but rather to send Arthur Griffith, 
the founder of Sinn Féin and Minister for Foreign Affairs, and Michael Collins, the Minister for Finance and Head of the IRA Intelligence, to lead the negotiating team in his stead. I asked Dermot Ferreter to help unravel this puzzle. De Valera had an awful lot of power within Sinn Féin. He wasn't just president of Sinn Féin. He was also the self-declared president of the Republic, and he had the Dáil backing uh, for that. So he is in a position to decide who was going to London and who was not. Now, in his strategic thinking about who he should send, he's obviously aware of his cabinet and the broader Sinn Féin movement and what they might be able to bring to it and who might be best (laughs) staying at home. The real issue, of course, and controversial issue is that he himself is going to stay at home and he offered a variety of different reasons as to why he should not travel, that he should remain behind as the symbol of the Republic, uh, untarnished by what he referred to as the London atmosphere. And of course, he had met David Lloyd George immediately after the ceasefire in July 1921. So he has the measure of him and he knows broadly what David Lloyd George is offering. So his decision not to go is very controversial because he's more experienced and he's seen as the uh, as the statesman with a strategy. Um, and of course, he's very fastidious about words and about documents. So that was a surprise and it was controversial. There were some within Sinn Féin who understood uh, his reasoning and felt that he could be there as a kind of a final court of appeal in the event of the talks breaking down. But that was a miscalculation perhaps on his part. There was some surprise that Michael Collins was chosen, but we shouldn't assume that Michael Collins didn't want to be part of the solution. That's a myth. But he was worried that he'd be a scapegoat. He was worried that Eamon de Valera was sending him over because Eamon de Valera did not want to be the one to bring back the bad news. And as far as Michael Collins was concerned, the compromise was in the acceptance of the invitation to talk because a republic wasn't on offer. Ned Broy had been working with the Collins intelligence team since his release from prison. But as Collins and the negotiators prepared to leave for London, he was approached by Michael Collins. A couple of days before the delegation was due to travel to London, Collins casually told me to get ready to go to London as his private, private secretary. The main delegation, with the exception of Collins, travelled to London on Saturday morning, the 8th of October. I was directed to travel on the same boat as himself on the night of Sunday, the 9th of October. The security and bodyguard team of Emmett Dalton, Joe Dolan and Joe Gilfoyle travelled on the same boat and all arrived at Euston Station, London, on the Monday morning. It must have been with a great pride and not a little apprehension that Ned Broy boarded the mail boat at Dunleary. He surely couldn't help but wonder in awe at what was happening as he climbed the gangway on that autumn evening, that his countrymen were going to negotiate freedom for their country after 800 years of domination by the British who had exploited their people and their resources mercilessly. Soon on board, however, such thoughts left Broy as he met Michael Collins and began his role as private private secretary and began to take notes from Collins concerning the meetings planned for the next few days. Ned Broy was born in 1887 and was 11 years old when the 100th anniversary of Wolfe Tone's ill-fated 1798 rebellion was remembered. Wolfe Tone failed in his attempt to create an Irish Republic. Did the 11-year-old Ned ever think that the 34-year-old Ned 
would be traveling across the Irish Sea to London with Michael Collins, the modern day Ku Cullen and mastermind of the Irish War of Independence for treaty talks with the British enemy towards the creation of an independent and free Ireland and that he had been a crucial linchpin in the War of Independence. He had in effect become the leading spy in Irish history and now he was the private assistant to the man who had played such a huge part in bringing Britain to the peace table. Broy had finally moved into the public sphere and out from the shadows of espionage and away from his schizophrenic existence. Michael Collins had specifically requested that Broy would be part of the engine room team of this supremely historic moment in Irish history. The nature of their relationship indicates that there was supreme trust and rapport between the two men. Broy's early release from prison is indicative of this. There were over 6,000 people detained by the British at the time of the truce, and Broy was the second person to be freed. Naturally, Ned Broy was one of those confidants. Collins had long ago learned to trust Broy, trust his integrity, trust his judgment. And it would be absolutely astonishing if Collins had not told Ned Broy a lot of what was going on, especially when he was frustrated, as he was from time to time, uh, and the negotiations were in trouble. So Roy was one of those who, I think it's fair to assume, would have been brought into discussions and would have been brought into Collins's confidence because Collins knew perfectly well that Roy wouldn't blab, he wouldn't tell the press, he wouldn't gossip about it. This was a man who knew how to be discreet and had a very proven record of discretion. Given this closeness, Ned must have feared for the safety of Collins, who was now in plain sight of the old enemy and engaging with the behemoth that was the British negotiating party and doing so in their own capital city. While Broy's role was not that of a bodyguard, it is apparent from his accounts that he was always on the alert for anything that might harm his boss. I think anyone who is engaged with the Sinn Féin movement at that stage would have been intrigued by who was going over to London. I mean, this is big news. And you can see that in the contemporary media reaction to it. The stakes are very high. There was broad sympathy for the delegation and the task that they faced. There's also considerable optimism. The stakes, nonetheless, are very, very high. The possibility of failure is very high. There's no guarantee that there's going to be an agreement. Indeed, if you were a betting individual in 19... 19- 21 in the autumn of 1921, you probably would have wagered that the talks would collapse, that they would fail. Uh, but there's considerable moral pressure on them, as well as political pressure, and they were acutely aware of that. And I think somebody like Ned Broy, given how close, for example, Ned Broy had been to losing his life as a result of the risks that he had taken, as a result of his betrayal of the police force that he was employed by and of the British authorities that he would have appreciated how high the stakes were because he was very much of that that sense of crisis and opportunity and the, the degree to which they could coexist. Two properties in the upmarket area of Kensington in central London had been chosen to accommodate the delegation. 15 Cadogan Gardens for Michael Collins, Desmond Fitzgerald and others including the security detail lived. 
Michael Collins's bedroom was on the top floor and Ned Roy was in the bedroom next door to Collins. Both addresses were within walking distance of number 10 Dowling Street, where the formal meeting of the treaty negotiations were to take place. Despite the excitement and optimism of the delegation as they arrived in London, there was also tension and foreboding in the air. On the Sunday night before Collins and Broy arrived, someone had written the word murderers in red paint in large letters on the footpath outside 22 Hans Place. Anonymous threatening letters arrived daily addressed to the leader of the Irish murder gang, depicting coffins and death heads. On the day the treaty negotiation started, Tuesday the 11th of October, a wreath had been placed at the Cenotaph with the inscription, in memory of the 586 members of His Majesty's naval, military and police forces murdered in Ireland. Against this backdrop, the Irish delegation were not seen as advocates for Irish nationalism and independence, but terrorists who had the impertinence to challenge by force of arms the rule of the British Crown and the British Empire in Ireland. The security detail and bodyguards for the delegation, Liam Tobin, Emmett Dalton et al, were extremely anxious for the safety of the Irish party, especially Michael Collins, who a few months previously was one of the most wanted men in the United Kingdom, with a bounty on his head. The British popular press was not slow to share their opinion of the Irish. The delegation had leased three Rolls-Royce limousines to transport the delegation to number 10 on the first day of the deliberations. Some of the pressmen gathered at Downing Street made much of the fact that they noticed the outline of revolvers in their jackets. IRA guns at number 10, screamed the headlines. So real was the fear about Collins' safety that an aircraft had been acquired to rush Collins back to Dublin should the negotiations break down and the War of Independence had to resume. Collins, after all, was the guerrilla war master who had brought the British to the negotiating table. Emma Dalton recruited an ex-RAF pilot with sound nationalistic credentials, Jack McSweeney, who would later lead the Irish Air Corps in 1923, and who helped to purchase a Martinside aircraft which accommodated 10 passengers. Plans were drawn up for an emergency flight which would take three to four hours, and a landing strip was prepared at Leopardstown Racetrack in County Dublin, south of the city. On these occasions, Broy replied that he had a huge list of charges of high and low treason to answer, and that if the truce amnesty was revoked, so avoiding Collins's arrest was Broy's priority. Broy tells us that he always did feel that he might have been one of the 10 passengers on that emergency flight home. There were, however, other contributors to the sense of foreboding. The Irish delegation were not a united, cohesive body who had a clear, unified vision of the Ireland which would emerge after a treaty had been signed, or if indeed a treaty would be signed. As a history teacher, I always had to impress upon my students to be wary of assuming conclusions in which we know, with the benefit of hindsight, into the minds of the people who were there at the time. Arthur Griffith did not like or trust Erskine Childers, 
believing that he had been appointed as secretary to the delegation by Eamon de Valera to keep de Valera informed of the progress of the talks. Tensions and personality clashes soon began to emerge as the treaty negotiations commenced. Kathleen McKenna was one of the secretaries who lived in Hans Place and went to Cadogan Gardens each evening to take dictation from Michael Collins, resulting in the copious documents which formed the formal record of the treaty negotiations. McKenna gives us a great account. She describes Ned Broy as Michael Collins' personal typist and general factorum. Broy occupied the bedroom next door to Michael Collins on the top floor of Cadogan Gardens, and Collins had requested that Broy travel to London as a reward for the services he had rendered to the cause whilst a detective in Great Brunswick Street police barracks. On the nights I visited Cadogan Gardens, Ned Broy gave me notes and scribbled memos written by Collins to be included in my daily report. One night I remember Ned Broy walked me back the quarter of a mile to Han's place. It was a calm, pitch dark, foggy night as we hurried home. Broy was a strongly built, tall man, somewhat similar in stature to Michael Collins. Conversing in low tones while walking in the centre of the silent road, we became conscious of figures loitering in the shadows. From a kind of a shop window arcade, three or four thugs stepped out unexpectedly before us and without uttering a syllable, blocked our way. One flashed an electric torch in Broy's face and by its bright light, I could see pistols gleaming. They scrutinized Broy's face thoroughly, passing light over his head and then silently walked away. I was terrified, but reassured by Broy's calmness. Don't react, he said. I've been in worse scraps and being calm doesn't give them an excuse. I was afraid they thought he was Michael Collins. Broy had nerves of steel and that had served him well in previous escapades. The support staff worked extremely long hours and were available night and day to run urns or keep records or type notes. The archives are full of various formal and informal notes. There was very strict bookkeeping to account for the meagre financial resources available to the Irish delegation. So there is a meticulous keeping of invoices and receipts, be it invoices for the hire of the limousines, to orders for food and confectionery from Harrods, for a grand dinner which was held in Hans Place on the 10th of November, one month after the delegation arrived. Kathleen McKenna in her autobiography goes on. It was a great treat after all our hard and intense work to look forward to a supper evening in Hans Place with music and dancing and entertainment. When the feast was at its height, Michael Collins with Lean Tobin, Tom Cullen, Emmett Dalton, Joe Gilfoyle and Joe Dolan joined us from Cadogan Gardens. It wasn't long before they began to get boisterous, throwing cushions, then tangerines, apples, nuts, and finally coal from the coal scuttles. We all knew of Collins's exuberant, contrasting character, his humanity and his warm-heartedness, his openness and his frankness, his flair for playing pranks, his quick rages and his immediate decisions. Now he was far from being a saint, but I do know he attended daily mass at Brompton Oratory. Michael's 
surplus energy was burnt up at the expense of sluggards and late risers. Michael, who was an early riser, seemingly needing little sleep, rewarded those who stayed on in bed with a jug of cold water poured over them. There was some consternation when a jug of water was thrown over the wife of a delegation member. This horseplay often resulted in invoices that annoyed the Department of Finance in Dublin, particularly one for damage to furniture. Ned Broy tells us, Michael Collins worked incredible hours in London, dealing with the most varied of things, and everything was dealt with the utmost precision and efficiency, whether a military question arising in Ireland or a complicated financial or economic problem. I knew this as I tried to keep order on his papers. The result is that he hardly ever got to bed before 1am and yet always arose about 7 in the morning and always looked as fresh as if he had just taken a cold plunge. He duly pulled us out of bed in the morning, whether we complained of fatigue or not, and repeated the process when going to bed in the small hours, unless one had taken the precaution of locking the bedroom door when retiring. He discovered that the feet of some of our beds could be bent back, leaving the bed sloping towards the floor. I remember looking into Emmett Dalton's bedroom one night and seeing him in his bed, with the bed making an angle of 30 degrees to the floor. As Collins had not yet come in, I asked Emmett what happened to his bed. He said Collins would be sure to come in later that night and bend the legs back. And to save him the bother, Emmett had bent the legs back himself. Ned Broy, although not one of Collins's bodyguards, seemed to be ever vigilant concerning his safety and recounts how he was awake early several mornings and heard Michael Collins leave his bed around 7am. Getting up shortly afterwards, he was surprised not to find him at breakfast, but was told by the house staff that Collins went out alone each morning between 7 and 8. Broy was greatly alarmed about this, given the anger and anti-Irish sentiment that was abroad in London and that he and many of the staff had personally experienced. Asking the staff why no one had told Collins how dangerous it was out in the streets, he was quickly told that no one was brave enough to speak to Collins like that. Accordingly, the next morning when he left Cadogan Gardens, I decided to follow him at some distance in case some enemy had noticed his habit of going out early, alone, and had planned to harm the hero of the Irish War of Independence. I kept a good distance behind and saw him enter the church of St. Mary in Cadogan Place. I entered and stayed at the back of the church and saw Michael at Mass in a most devout manner. When Mass was over, he remained on his knees, then got up to light a candle and knelt again at the statue of Our Lady. When he moved to leave the church, he saw me and at first frowned and then laughed. I complained of his going out without telling anyone and reminded him in no uncertain terms of the dangers of being out alone. I offered to accompany him to morning mass in the future, even though I was not part of his bodyguard, and from then on we went to St Mary's or to Brompton Oratory, which is very close to the famous Harrods store. During the course of the negotiations, Collins received many abusive and threatening letters and Ned Broy, as his private secretary, dealt with these. On one morning, Broy opened a letter addressed to Collins, which contained a piece of cloth, and a letter enclosed which said the cloth contained disease germs, which the writer hoped would kill Collins and anyone near him. Broy threw the offending cloth into the fire, not knowing the veracity of the writer's claims. Broy goes on to tell us 
that he was teased mercilessly by Collins for taking it upon yourself to destroy correspondence to the Irish Republic which should have been recorded and filed properly. The talks were dragging on and the support staff, including Kathleen McKenna and Ned Broy, were never entirely sure if the talk would break down and they had to return to Dublin for the resumption of the War of Independence. Ned Broy was still out from custody on bail and no doubt the prospects of being re-arrested and incarcerated again weighed heavily on his mind. The final draft terms of the treaty were hammered out and Lloyd George issued an ultimatum that the terms more properly known as the Articles of Agreement for a Treaty between Great Britain and Ireland, had to be accepted or rejected by the 5th of December 1921, or that war and terrible war would result in Ireland. Even though the Irish delegation had full powers as plenipotentiaries to negotiate on behalf of Dáil Éireann, they had agreed to bring these terms back to Cabinet in Dublin, made up of de Valera, Carl Brewer, Austin Stack and William T. Cosgrave. The Irish delegation left from Euston Station at 8pm on Saturday the 3rd of December to catch the night mail boat to Dublin with the intention of being at a cabinet meeting in the Mansion House at 11am on the morning of the 4th. It is reasonable to assume that Ned Broy travelled with Collins and the other delegation leaders. The stakes could not have been higher and Ned Broy no doubt felt the anxiety and exhaustion and genuine fear mixed with pride of the leaders. They had secured freedom for Ireland, or as Michael Collins called it, If not complete freedom, then the stepping stones to complete freedom. Such freedom had not been enjoyed for 800 years. They knew, however, that some in Dublin would demand nothing less than a fully sovereign and free Irish Republic. And if it meant that the War of Independence had to resume, then so be it. Or maybe that Lloyd George's threat of war was a bluff. Roy, along with others from the delegation, were sure that this was not a bluff. The Irish party arrived at Hollyhead in North Wales and boarded the ship the Cambria, which was undertaking her maiden voyage and bound for Dunleary. If there was any room for excitement, being on board this new vessel, it was short-lived. As the Cambria collided with a small fishing boat, almost slicing it in two, the noise of the collision was deafening on the Cambria. Three of the seven crew on the fishing boat were killed and were thrown overboard, but four survived. The Cambria circled in the area for over an hour to see if the lost men could be recovered. They were eventually recovered and the Cambria resumed its journey to Dublin, but now very much delayed. And this resulted in very little time in Dublin for the Cabinet to meet and discuss the terms of the treaty. The Irish delegation were committed to return to London that evening to resume what was to be the last meeting of the Anglo-Irish treaty negotiations. The Cabinet meeting was very tense and tempers flared and flew. Ned Broy was on hand to provide secretarial services for Collins, Did he hear voices raised and fists slamming on the mahogany tables of the mansion house? The cabinet meeting ended in near stalemate. Three cabinet ministers were against the treaty, de Valera, Brewer and Stack, and four were in favour, Griffith, Collins, Barton and Cosgrave. Despite this, 
the delegation were instructed to return to London to reject the treaty and to argue better terms, and crucially, to instruct Dublin on those terms before agreeing to sign the treaty. The delegation met with the British for the last time and secured some significant changes to the terms, one of which was that the oath of the king was to be changed from one of allegiance to an oath of fidelity. At 11.15pm on the 5th of December 1921, in Hans Place, the delegation agreed to accept the terms. Collins and Griffith had decided to act alone in accepting the treaty, and the other delegates reluctantly, after much prolonged discussion, agreed. Kathleen McKenna clearly remembers the cars arriving from Downing Street that evening. It was after 8pm when I heard the cars pulling up at Hans Place. A moment later, Collins and Griffith, accompanied by Broy, passed quickly through the hall and up the stairs. A few minutes later, Broy came downstairs and said that Collins and Griffith were prepared to sign the treaty. There then commenced animated conversations with the members of the delegation. And by around about 11pm, it was agreed that the treaty was to be signed. The delegation all left for Downing Street and the treaty was signed at 2 a.m. on the morning of the 6th of December. The Irish delegation took no time to conclude their extended stay in London. They headed home to a very uncertain future. They had secured a momentous deal with the British. Now they had to convince the die-hard Republicans in the Dáil and in the country generally, that the treaty was indeed a momentous deal. On Michael Collins's instructions, Ned Broy remained in London to do a thorough clean-out of the two buildings that housed the Irish delegation, Hans Place and Cadogan Gardens. One can see him, a tall, gaunt figure, striding from room to room, collecting notebooks and discarded memos. Did he laugh at the broken beds, and smiled as he remembered the lighter moments when Michael Collins' larger-than-life sense of humour broke the tension and heady anxiety of the 46 days and 38 formal meetings that resulted in the Articles of Agreement for a treaty between Great Britain and Ireland. Did he shudder with an awful premonition of how the members of the IRA would react to the treaty? In our next episode, Broy and Ireland are left with the consequences of the decisions made in London for peace and freedom. We know that Broy must have been shattered. He would have been devastated. And we hear from a voice closely associated with Ned Broy. What did you do, Dad? It was so great. This podcast is researched, written and presented by me, Brendan McCauley. The podcast is produced and edited by Orn O'Halloran, Sound design from Lachlan Hart. The podcast is executive produced by Owen Brennan for Go Loud. Darren Cleary is our commissioning editor. This podcast is brought to you by Go Loud. Don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. <laughs>